Uh, well, as you're standing, uh, let's uh, pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you for this book of Job, and we thank you for that all it has been teaching us over the last uh, few weeks. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through it today. You speak to us and you reveal yourself, as we shall say, see this morning. Lord, help us to receive that revelation of yourself and let it make a difference in our lives. Amen. Amen. Please sit down. So, uh, technically we're in uh, uh, chapters 38 to 42 of Job today, but we're going to be a little bit all over the place, really. Uh, so be prepared to do a bit of page flicking. I've got to find Job myself. Where is it? Here we go. Right. Um, a few weeks ago, I went to a preaching conference uh, where we all sit around and criticize each other's preaching. And as part of that discussion, um, uh, we were discussing whether we should ever start a sermon with a phrase like, it was a dark and windy night. <laughs> and the general opinion that, we, that is what, was that we shouldn't. It was a very bad idea. But here in Job, it was a dark and windy night. And the storm is rising, and it's been building for some time as the tension in the book of Job rises. You see, there's a real storm brewing, a bit like the Hollywood backdrop to the drama of Job's appeal here to God and the debate that he has with his friends. So the storm first appears in chapter 30 and verses 20 to 22. You're going to find it, so uh, we go there. where Job says uh, about God. He says, You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. So Job cries out to God from the storm within his soul, you snatch me up, you drive me before the winds. But you can also really imagine that the skies may well have darkened at that time and that the ashes of Job's rubbish tip might have started to swirl about his face as the wind begins to pick up. And then in chapter 20, uh, 36 and verse 32, Elihu speaks about God. And he says, uh, he fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm, even the cattle make known its approach. So they're using figurative language. You can imagine, though, they're picking up that language from what's going on around them. And you can imagine the scrawny cattle who might hang around that rubbish tip looking for a little scraps of food, uh, uh, sitting down on their bellies, waiting for the wind and the rain to come. And perhaps, I wonder, uh, if Job had been uh, a bit better prepared for what was to come, he should have paid uh, more, potenti- uh, more attention uh, to those cattle. Since actually he himself had anticipated the moment which is about to come. So turn back to chapter 9 on page 515. And we find here Job speaking uh, with great faith about the greatness of God. So in verse 4, he says, His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? Verse 6, He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillar trembles. 
verse 8. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Uriah and the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. You see, God is so powerful and so great. Job says to himself, how can I ever approach God? Verse 17, he says, over the page, he would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would crush me with a storm. If Job would look around him and pay attention, then he could see that that storm was now brewing all around him. But he fails to pick it up. He fails to see what he himself anticipated because he's now so emotionally uh, caught up in his own internal storm that he cannot see God's own storm brewing around him. And of course, we don't blame him for that, do we? Because he's lost everything, hasn't he? He's lost his wealth, uh, his business, his family, and even his health. And yet... The word says he is a righteous man. We know that Job has not sinned. And so Job, throughout this book, has demanded vindication, hasn't he? He says to God, why? Why have you done this to me? I've not done anything wrong. And his friends uh, haven't helped, have they? Elisphaz and Bildath and Sophar. They've all come with their neat theological system, saying, well, you must be lying, Job. I mean, your suffering is caused by your sin, isn't it? It's, uh, it's retribution. You sin, God punishes you for your sins. But Job says, no, that's not me. He says in chapter 31 on page 532, he says, I am innocent of in effect. Verses 35 to 37, he says, uh, let them write out an indictment against me. I'd wear it on my lapel. People would think it's a joke. People would laugh at it. It would prove nothing against me. So in his frustration, Job, the mortal man, throws down this gauntlet to his creator and he says, oh, that I had someone to hear me, I sign now my defense, let the Almighty answer me. And the storm gathers. And then Elihu raids in, doesn't he? And Diana uh, talked about him last week. And Elihu's got a new message. He says, well, if your suffering's not due to uh, retribution, then perhaps God is causing it uh, for your correction. Come on, Job, he says, you'll be a much better man at the end of it. And of course, there's some truth in that argument, isn't there? In the New Testament, we're told suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. But if we know chapter 1 and 2 of Job, then we can't help but think, but no, you've got the wrong man here. Job is not being punished. Job's not being corrected. God has already held him up as a righteous man. You know the line by now, don't you, from Job chapter 1. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So is it surprising that the temperature inside Job, his blood temperature, is rising? The storms both within himself and without are raging. And Job wants an explanation. He wants to know why he's suffering. Why is this all happening to me, a righteous man? Is God doing his job properly? And a few weeks ago, I left you in, uh, with God in the dock of the Court of Human Rights and Justice at The Hague, back in chapter 31. 
before Elihu came in and made his uh, interruption. And God is still there in the dock as the storm rages around him, the storm that Job himself anticipated back in chapter 9. And so we come to chapter 38 and verse 1, with God in the dock. Verse 1 of chapter 38, the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? The storm's going to be fierce, Job, 30 miles per hour winds. The three rivers race will be cancelled. It's going to be tough. Brace yourself like a man, he says. I will question you and you shall answer me. You see, what Job wanted was an explanation. But we're not going to get that. We're going to get a revelation. We're going to get a revelation of God. God is going to speak to him after the storm, and he can't just sit back and let it all wash over him. Because it's not going to be a nice sort of uninteractive speech like what I'm doing now. There are going to be questions. More than 50 of them in this, uh, this part of the speech alone. But it's not going to be a nice uh, quiz led by Paul Henry. Job is going to be pounded with one question after another. And there's only three possible answers to these questions. The three possible answers are no, you, Lord, or I don't know. So perhaps we need one of those David Cooper style uh, uh, voting pads on our hands, you know those. No, you, Lord, or don't know. So here we go. Let's have a look at the questions. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Answer, don't know. Of course Job doesn't know. He wasn't even a trinkle in his great, 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 great grandmother's eye at the time, was he? But God knew him because God knew him since before the world began. Who marked off the world's dimensions? Answer, you, Lord, because God is Lord of creation. Who can say to the waves of the sea, verse 11, this far you may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. The answer, you, Lord. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown dawn its place? Verse 12, answer, no. Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Verse 17, have you seen that place called Sheol, the underworld, where the dead sort of led this shadowy existence? Um, No, can't say I have. What is the way to the abode of light? Where does light live? Where does darkness reside? The answer is, I don't know. Verse 25, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? Uh, you, Lord. Can you bind those false deities, the constellations, Pleiades, Orion, the bear? Uh, no, not me. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Well, I read a textbook on it once. Herc says, God... Can you set up my dominion over the earth? No, you've got me on that one. Do you see, he's the Lord of the creation. He's the Lord of the sea and of the land, the climate, the cosmos, the whole natural world. Chapter chapter 39, verse 1. God says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? No, says Job. Do you count the months till they bear their babies, protectively caring for those insignificant wild animals? What have they got to do with this? Job says, no, can't say I ever have. Who let the wild donkeys go free? Uh, Well, that would have been you, Lord. 
Yes, and God says, and look how much they enjoy their freedom. Verse 7, he says, the donkey laughs at the commotion in the town. He never has to put up the driver's shout. He's got no one to bother him. The wild ox, too, here, so of no man. Look at the ostrich. Yes, the ostrich might look pretty stupid running away when their eggs are threatened, leaving them on the ground where they may be trampled by wild animals or whatever. And she's a bird who can't even fly, for goodness sake. But what did God do? He gave this ostrich the ability to run, to run like the wind, take her to the Grand National and she'd laugh at both horse and rider. Take the horse of war. He needs to show his strength. He needs to laugh in the face of fear and strike terror into his enemies. He needs to hear that blast of the trumpet in verse 25 and catch the scent of battle from afar. Who can do that? The horse of war, because God has made him able to do that. The hawk knows when to take flight. The eagle needs to be able to see its prey from afar so it can swoop down on sea and take the food in its claws. Who gave all these creatures these special, almost miraculous qualities? The answer, you lords. It's a barrage of questions. But Job, of course, is too wise to answer, isn't he? He's uh, not touched his little voting buttons. In chapter 40, in verse 1, he says... Uh, God says, will the one who asks whether I govern this world well speak up, says the Lord. Let him stand up. Will the one who contends for the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but have no, I have no answer. Trice, but I will say no more. So you see, Job doesn't get his explanation, does he? but he gets this amazing revelation of God. So what does it show us today? Well, I think we need to look a little bit more closely at some of these questions. Because God's revelation doesn't, act, doesn't simply say, look at me, I'm God, look how big I am. We often think that, don't we? We sang the song, uh, my God is a great big God, and I love that song. But often we think, when we read these types of passages in the Bible, God is just saying, look at me, I'm big. But it's more than that, because he shows us how he has so much loving mercy and knowledge of the world. You see, he's seen the darkness of the world as well as the light. He's seen the futility of the world of the dead. He cares for lions, the ravens, for mountain goats. He looks at beasts like the ostrich and the war horse and he says, well, what do they need to make them stand out among animals? What do they need to fulfill their role in life? And he gives it to them. And yes, he also tips out the water jars of heaven when the ground is hard and he wins battles for people with the hail in his storehouses, if you remember that story from Joshua 10. And if mankind were left to channel water uh, wherever they chose, you can just imagine the hosepipe bands, that would ensue, couldn't you? You can imagine the, the water wars uh, as everybody tried to get all the water for themselves. And yet the Lord channels the water to where there is none. He satisfies the wasteland and makes it sprout with grass. And God limits the sea. And the sea is traditionally the symbol of chaos and evil in the ancient world. And he says to those waves, this far and no further. In effect, he's saying... In my mercy, Job, I care for you far more than any of these other living creatures. In my mercy, 
Margaret, Sarah, Alex, he says, I care for you more than any of these other living creatures. I care for you more than the lion, the mountain goat, the eagle. So much more do I care for you. And he says, yes, there is evil and chaos and suffering in the world. But I said, this far and no further. Because not only is God the Lord over creation, but he is the Lord over evil. Chapter 14, verse 6. God speaks to Job for the second time in a second speech. He speaks for the second time out of the storm. And again, he says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. There's more questions, more than 15 this time. He says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? God has got uh, Job pretty well sussed, doesn't he? Because that is actually what Job was trying to do in chapter 31. He was trying to impeach God for incompetency. Okay, then Job responds, God, if that's how you feel, you have a go. Verse 10, adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. So like the film, Bruce Almighty, isn't it? Ah, says God, but there's just one more thing you need to know before you take this job on. Because verse 11, you'll be taking on man's pride. And that's bad enough, but behind man's pride stand two monsters, the Behemoth and the Leviathan. Now, it's difficult to know exactly who these monsters, these creatures are. The Behemoth is introduced in verse 15. And some people say from the description uh, that it sounds a bit like the hippopotamus. But the hippo can't climb mountains, uh, so how could he enjoy the fruits of the mountains? And also they weren't exactly well known in that part of the world either. But this creature, whatever it is, is clearly very scary. Verse 24, can anyone capture by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? The Leviathan is introduced in chapter 41 and verse 1. And he's equally difficult to capture with a fish hook or tie down with a piece of rope. He's a sea creature. Some say that he might be the crocodile. But again, the description is not a good enough match. There's an element of the physical in this description, but there's also an element of the mythical. Leviathan also appears in Psalm 74 uh, as a creature who has got to be crushed by God. And in Isaiah 27, verse 1, a passage which speaks about the deliverance of evil, uh, deli- sorry, the deliverance of Israel. It says, The Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. And in chapter 19, verse 29 of Job, uh, Job calls for that same sword to be brought down in punishment against evil, in judgment. And so in the form of this mythical sea monster, evil is personified. Satan is given bodily form. And God shows that he is Lord over evil. Take a look at verse 5 of, uh, of chapter 41. Would you make a pet of the Leviathan like a bird? Would you put him on a leash and take him home to your small girls? Look, my darlings, look what daddy has brought home for you as a present. Isn't he beautiful? Just remember, your Leviathan is for life, not just for Christmas. (laughs) Or at least until he eats you. No. Verse 9, 
You have no hope of subduing him, says God. Verse 11, everything under heaven belongs to me. And verse 33, nothing on earth is his equal. He is a creature without fear. But he is a creature nevertheless. And that means that he is God's. Just turn with me to page 607. And a psalm, Psalm 104. Verse 25, halfway down the first column on the the right-hand page. Verse 25, there is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you formed, to frolic there. You see, you formed. He's a creature of God's. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord, but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And that's what this revelation of God is saying to us. It is saying that the Lord is the Lord over evil. He is the Lord over this mighty beast, the Leviathan. He has him under control. He is his. He is his creature. If he removes... uh, if he hides his face from him, they are terrified. When you take, he takes away their breath, they die and return to the dust. God is Lord over evil. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And if we've read chapters 1 and 2 of Job, then that comes as no surprise to us, does it? You see, it's Satan's hand which is lifted against Job. But he does nothing without permission from God. Even when you want to go back and take a second bite of the cherry by taking away Job's health, he only acts within the limits uh, that God has given him. God says he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So God does have this mighty Leviathan on a leash. He is tightly controlled by God. And if we're about to walk into a remote farmyard somewhere where there are nasty barking dogs then the first thing we want to know is that they are tied down. The second thing we want to know is that there is an owner out there who is able to take control and tell them to be quiet, not to leap up, and not to tear our head off. Well, in the case of evil, the answer is yes. Evil is tightly chained down. God is there in control. It's not about dualism. It's not a fight between good and evil on an equal level, and we have to hope that good will come out on top. No, evil is bound head and foot. He can never run free. So what do we make of this for ourselves? Well, Job suffered. Was it fair? No. Was it just? Not in the sense of retribution, was it? Because Job had done nothing wrong, nothing requiring punishment. Was it corrective? We don't know. We don't, we're not told here what Job learned from his experiences. Can we be sure that Job was in control, uh, that God was in control though? And God knew what he was doing when he allowed Job to suffer? What answer would Job, uh, God give to Job? 
He'd say, did God make the heavens? Did God lay out the earth's foundations? And the answer is yes. Emphatically yes. See, it wasn't wrong of Job to ask those questions of God. It wasn't wrong of him to have a good old whinge at his maker. And we all feel like doing that sometimes, don't we? I mean, I do. And there's nothing wrong with that. As I said right at the beginning of this series, But does Job have to accuse God of being unjust because he has suffered? Well, this is saying that he doesn't, no. Does Job have to prove his innocence because he is suffering as his friends uh, try to make him do? The answer is no, he doesn't have to prove his innocence. We know he is innocent. Does he have to scratch his head and try to work out desperately uh, what God is trying to tell him and, and how he's trying to correct him through these circumstances? Well, the answer is no. He doesn't have to scratch his head and think about that. What he does have to do is remember God's loving mercy and knowledge of this world. See, if God cares for creation and looks after all his creatures, even if he gives the ostrich something to laugh about, how much more does he care for Job and for you and for me? How much more? You see, he needs to remember that. Yes, there is evil in the world, but it's firmly in God's control. Satan is firmly within God's grip and can do nothing outside of the limits that God has given him. Yes, there is suffering, but there's nothing to fear because God is in control. So what must Job do? And for the most part, he has been doing. He needs to trust in God during the blessings and the curses, during the riches and the ashes of the rubbish tip. He must trust in the sovereignty and power of God's. And of course, that's what we need to do, isn't it? No matter what we are facing, and some of us are facing terrible things, we put our trust in the sovereignty and power of God, knowing with absolute confidence that no matter what evil comes our way, it cannot and will not go one tiny fraction beyond the leash which God has put it on. God is Lord over creation. God is Lord over the evil. God is Lord over our lives. And all this we learn, not because God has given us a logical, well-thought-out explanation in two and a half thousand words. That's not the way it works. What he has given us is a revelation, a revelation of himself. And it's that revelation which gives us the answers we need. So we should never despise a book like Job just because it's a bit obscure or difficult. We should never give up on the Old Testament because it describes a strange land compared to our own. Because the Bible's God's words and in it he has revealed himself. So we cherish it and we engage with it even when it's difficult. And ultimately we submit to it even when there are times when it would be easier not to. See, God has revealed himself in his word, the Bible, and in the word, his son. And we come more to his son uh, next week. When we come to the end of the series, and we talk about the end that comes at the end. So let's pray.
Lord, there have probably been uh, times in all of our lives uh, when we have suffered terribly for one reason or another. And we've said to you, why, Lord? Why me? Why is this happening to me? And Lord, we don't get all the answers. And we don't get them in a clear, logical, explanation-type way. And yet here, in your words, we see a revelation of yourself. And that revelation tells us not only that you're big and powerful, but you are merciful and loving, and you care deeply for each one of your creatures, and for us, your human beings, more than any other. Lord, we pray that we might take that to heart. We pray that our hearts might be made steadfast as we put our trust and our confidence and our faith in you. We thank you, Lord, that you do not judge us in our suffering. You do not judge us in the harsh words that we might say against you. But, Lord, you reveal yourself to us, and may that be a comfort to us all of our days. In the name of Jesus, amen.